Hello, and welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we normally discuss our favorite albums song by song. But this time around, we're focusing on one particular song on our favorite albums in one particular position. I'll explain that in a second. But first, roll call. Rich Bunnell. Mike DeFabio. Yeah, it's just a cozy two-person panel, just me and Mike. <laughs> uh, we're trying to make this series as bite-sized as we are capable of doing on this podcast. So we're breaking from format this time for a special new series, and here's what it's all about. So if you've listened to enough Discord and Rhyme, you've probably heard me mention that a particular song makes a great track, too. I think I've said it like 15 to 20 times by now. <laughs> over the course of the show uh, and this is <laughs> more or less yeah and this is a long-standing fixation of mine so much so that back in 2006 i made a compilation called 22 twos featuring 22 of my favorite track twos all in a row it's named after a jay-z song of the same name from the album reasonable doubt i've been around this block too many times rock too many rhymes cop too many nines too to all my brothers it ain't too late to come together because too much black and too much love equal forever i don't know what's funny is that the jay-z song is actually track seven on the album so it didn't qualify for the <laughs> compilation <laughs> missed an opportunity there yeah the track two politics as usual on that album is actually really good and did make the compilation i, I figured it, it was sort of a consolation prize <laughs> so nobody understood why the hell i would make a comp like this until i regrouped with my old music nerd friends on this podcast and it turned out they'd also thought about this really specific subject which is why i love you guys <laughs> so as our subtitle implies discord and rhyme is an album podcast and one thing that makes a bunch of songs into a great album is great sequencing and you can't have great sequencing without a well-chosen track two. So track one, just by itself, is a song. Track two is where an album starts to become an album. And what's fun is that there are a whole bunch of ways artists and bands use track two. And that's what we're hoping to get at with this series. This is next level album nerd stuff. This is the real stuff. We save it for you guys. <laughs> So before we start, I wanted to spotlight the lead-in song I chose for this series, which is It's Not Right by Devo. It's track two on their Freedom of Choice album, and it's the song that glues together two more well-known songs, Girl You Want, and Whip It. I've always loved the way this catchy, unassuming little song sort of bridges together those big hit singles. It inspired the whole 22-2's comp, and when I faced the question of what should be track two on a whole album of track twos, uh, it seemed like the natural choice. And I figured it made for a good theme song. Anyway, Mike and I have each picked three of our favorite track twos to share with each other, so let's get started. Uh, Mike, I've been blabbering on for a while, so why don't you go first? What you got for us? I have got Pyramid Song by Radiohead, which is track two on their 2001 album Amnesiac. Angels. Swim. 
song isn't even really my favorite track too by radiohead that would be paranoid android but i i didn't uh, pick, yeah i didn't pick that one just because i wouldn't know where to start and i'd be too worried about repeating a bunch of things other people had said there's a lot of writing about radiohead out there it's it's kind of intimidating but uh what i think makes pyramid song a great track too like amnesiac is not the most cohesive radiohead album it's it's mostly it's 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 mostly outtakes from the kid a sessions but i i think they they made a really good choice making pyramid song track two because track one is packed like sardines in a crushed tin box and that song sounds like it was written and performed by an irate game boy uh, it's it's completely airless and artificial sounding. It sounds vacuum sealed. I had a clear, transparent, play it loud Game Boy in the '90s, and I think that would, that counts as an irate Game Boy. <laughs> it was destroyed in the fire. Oh wow! <laughs> so for the entirety of track one on that album, it kind of feels like you're holding your breath, and then yeah. track two starts, and it's this piano and strings, and suddenly there's air and you can breathe and it it leads into this very uh it's very uh, mysterious weightless sounding song and of course the song right after it is polk pull revolving doors which is one of the most just hilariously aggressive ex- experimental tracks they ever made so mm-hmm. having this nice uh, space to breathe in between those two tracks. It works really, really nicely. And I also think it's just a really interesting song because, well, first of all, I've seen a lot of pretty heated discussions online about what time signature this song is actually in. I, I was going to ask about that because I've seen it. I've seen a YouTube video of, that's like that, like um, where the video is like trying to triangulate the time signature and just can't really, really settle on one. It's in 4-4. It is. Yeah. But it's... (laughs) Wow. You have to kind of hear the 4-4 in your mind because there's nothing in the Mm -hmm. song that explicitly lays it out. It's it's that that piano chord pattern that repeats throughout the song. That's basically a... It's it's more or less a a clave rhythm that you you hear in a lot of Latin music. Um, It's just played very, very slowly and uh, in this very languid manner. That's so funny. Um, yeah. Um, and then when the drums do come in, they're not playing a straight up and down rhythm at all. They're just kind of floating in space with the rest of everything.
And the other thing is, uh, I was actually watching a video about this earlier today, trying to determine what key this song is in. All the chords in the song uh, are in the key of B minor, but the the chord B minor never actually shows up in the song. And the tonic chord is F sharp major. So it's, mm-hmm. I guess it's it's technically in, in F sharp Phrygian. Um, but I, <laughs> I don't think Radiohead were thinking about any of these things when they made it. I think it just started from Tom York messing around with black keys. So that's it's that's a, a funny thing that Radiohead have a tendency to do, which is they just kind of stumble into these really cool ideas. And then people whose job it is to make sense of music and, and figure out how it works, like have to have to do all this work of of trying to figure out what it is they're actually doing. And in the case of this one, when it's in four four, they're kind of just like running in circles and chasing their own tail. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're making it so much more uh complicated than it really is yeah so pyramid song so i i've uh, i've soured a bit on radiohead over the years which is why i skipped out on the hail to the thief episode uh, though you guys did really get me to reconsider some of the songs on that uh, uh, there are a lot of really good songs i just yeah uh, was was outranked in terms of radiohead found fandom in on this podcast but i do love pyramid song and i think it's a great choice uh, for this uh, for this particular the weird little comp we put together uh, so packed like sardines like the title implies it sort of has the feeling of being in like a cramped subway car, like yeah. the New York Metro or the London Underground or, uh, you know, or a Game Boy, I guess. <laughs> Take your pick. <laughs> Uh, and coming out of it, Pyramid Song, like it, it feels uh, well, like you said, it's like coming out for air. It feels like the subway car has emerged from the tunnel. Yeah. Uh, except the, except the rails have disappeared. And before <laughs> you is like a sea of shifting sand dunes that don't adhere to like Euclidean geometry or the, or the, or the laws of physics. Yeah, it's it's so disorienting. And from what I recall, that's kind of the reaction Radiohead fans had to Amnesiac after expecting something normal after Kid A. Right. Yeah. Like Kid A sounds downright normal compared to stuff like this. Yeah. Well, this was a a big hit single in several countries, though, which is the strangest thing. I don't think I ever heard it on the radio or anything, but it's it just goes to show you people will be willing to, to go to some pretty weird places with you if they trust you. Okay, well, let's move on to my first pick. Uh, so this is Stereo Lab's Sibel's Reverie from their uh, from their 1996 album Emperor Tomato Ketchup. up what any of these lyrics mean but i didn't <laughs> it's very i i looked up a translation a long time ago it's all real poetic uh, dreamlike stuff sounds like stereo lab except yeah. you know sometimes except with mentions of socialism and yeah it's it's not one of their more uh political ones so i put sibel's reverie right after pyramid song 
uh, because it serves basically the same function on its parent album of sort of opening up the sound of the album. Uh, but in this case, it puts like a French new wave smile on my face instead of making me hmm. question the nature of reality like Pyramid Song does. <laughs> Uh, so Sabelle's Reverie, as I said, is track two on Stereo Lab's 1996 album Emperor Tomato Ketchup. And uh, that album opens with a bubbling eight minute kraut rock groove called Metronomic Underground. So after lulling you into a daze with a uh, like that's those are the only lyrics in that song. Crazy, sturdy, a torpedo just for eight minutes. Uh, the, string, yeah. the strings come in and the album just sort of bursts open. Uh, so Pyramid Song felt like being on a train that encounters a shapeless sand dune. But Sabelle's Reverie feels more like that moment in Who Framed Roger Rabbit where the car leaves Los Angeles and enters Toontown. Uh, <laughs> and everything suddenly becomes vivid, colorful and cartoonish with like tweeting birds and a singing sun on the horizon. <laughs> There's a real sun coming out feel to this song. Um, and on top of that, it's also just a really good track, too, for Stereolab's entire career, in a way. Uh, so their earlier albums are, are just terrific. Uh, everyone should hear them. Uh, but they're much more in the vein of something like Metronomic Underground, like buzzing drones inspired by like punk rock and German art bands like Neu. Or I guess it's Neu. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but their their later career from Emperor Tomato Ketchup onwards has more elements of like easy listening bachelor pad and French go-go music. And uh, they'd already experimented with that sound a bit by this by this point. Uh, but this is but this song is where they full on embraced it for the rest of their career. And just finally, Sibel's Reverie is the best Stereo Lab song, hands down. And I and I love them. That's not a diss on the rest of their career. It's just a, a commentary on how much I love this song. And I just love it when a band's best song gets to be a, a great track, too. Yeah, this this might be my favorite Stereo Lab song, too. I'm, I'm not. It's it's close, but it's it could be. Because Emperor Tomato Ketchup was the first Stereo Lab album I ever heard. Same. So this was, yeah. So for me, it was also you know track two of Stereo Lab. <laughs> uh, so you know you're introduced to them by this uh, very uh, kind of mysterious uh, art rock groove with barely any lyrics to it, and there's lots of droning and synth burbling. It makes cool background music for your hip swinging space age bachelor pad. But, uh, and that's one of their EPs, right? The group played space age bachelor pad music. Yeah. Which itself space age bachelor pad music is the name of, uh, an album by is it Esquivel. <sighs> might, it might be. Yeah. One of those, uh, one of those guys you see in the exotica section. I just looked it up. It's Esquivel. Okay. But then, uh, Sabelle's reverie comes on and suddenly uh, they're showing you that they're also a band that makes really pretty music. You know, I love the whole song overall, but I'm a huge fan of, of I guess it's the bridge. It's whatever it's, you know, I'll call, I'll call it the B section. Mm -hmm. Sort but of the rising section, the rising section. It gets to, to this just really euphoric section of the song. And I never want it to stop.
them play it live or, you, or if you've uh, had a chance to see them play it live, it, it seems like they don't want to stop playing it either. I think there's a, a BBC session version where they play that section for so long that they they don't have time to go back to it. They just have to go back to the mm-hmm. the first section and end because they just get so into it. Yeah, I saw Stereolab live twice in the 2000s and i'm not i'm not so much like phil in that i'm someone who can get lost in like a band just playing for like 20 minutes on end but i i, I remember distinctly that stereo lab were a huge exception like they could just you know mm. jam on one of their grooves for just 10 minutes and i could get lost in it yeah i would have gotten lost when i saw them play this song but uh i i had to be standing next to some yahoo who kept like shouting and clapping during the best <laughs> part of the song Hey! 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 Oh no! So that, that was a bit, bit of a bring down. They, they oh, were still it's, great. It's though. like my mountain goat. It's like how I've never gotten to see a mountain goat show without an obnoxious crowd. Uh, you've had the same yeah. experience of Stereo Lab. I'm sorry. <laughs> I I did get to see them again though without Mary Hansen. Yeah, I, I saw I saw them uh, once before Mary Hansen sadly passed away, and uh, that was it was during the Sound Dust tour, uh, and once yeah. again in uh, on the Margarine Eclipse tour. So it, it was a very different tone each time. Yeah. Okay, so Mike, what's your second choice? My second choice. Choice two. <laughs> choice two, the most important. Uh, my second choice is by The Cure. It's called Primary. It's from their 1981 album, Faith. So this is just a great example of the early gothic sound of The Cure. Mm-hmm. But I think it makes a, a particularly great track, too, because, uh, well, if you've heard the album Faith, uh, just looking at the album cover, you can get an idea of what it sounds like. It is very gray and funereal, and uh, the tempos generally range from moderately slow to very slow. So you need something like primary, uh, you know, it wouldn't work as track one because it would just kind of fake you out. But as track two, it, it keeps you from getting bored. It's without a couple of songs like this. There's one more fast song that's track two on side two uh, called Doubt. It needs a couple of those songs because otherwise just all the all the overwrought sadness would eventually just make you go, oh, come on. So it, it you need something with a little energy near the front. Yeah, they didn't do the happy songs yet at this point in their career. <laughs> yeah, they hadn't. Yeah, they hadn't uh, evolved that far yet. Robert Smith hadn't learned how to do the unstuck. 
But uh, the other thing I think is really cool about this song is uh, there's no guitar and there are two bass lines. Yeah. Robert Smith plays Robert Smith plays bass on this one. For one thing, I just really like the sound of two simultaneous bass lines. I also just love the sound of a bass going through a flanger. Mm-hmm. You put a flange effect on your bass. It, that's like the that's like the goth sound to me in my mind. Like you put you put a bass through a flanger and I want to go out and buy a candelabra or something. <laughs> well, you don't already have one? Not yet. Ugh, get on that. Still decorating the new place. And also that that gives it the effect of for most of the song, there aren't any major or minor thirds. Uh, There's just these just these two basses playing these big open bass chords. Um, So if you look up the song, you know, what key the song is in, it'll just say A. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, that was one thing. I I thought that I had only picked major key songs and you had only picked minor key songs, but it's more accurate to say that yours are all kind of indeterminate key. Yeah, they're they're all kind of shadowy. (laughs) <laughs> um, there's, there's something, you know, there's always, You're always keeping us guessing, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, there, there are like a few moments, like at the beginning of the, the second verse where he's, he's the, the vocal melody, he's really hammering these, these minor thirds, but they don't, those moments don't come around too much. So it's, it's, it's ambiguous. And that's, I think that's neat, but yeah, primary great song. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to start out with, uh, with our musical mentor, Mark Prindle's description of this one. Primary is one of those, I can't believe I've lived my entire life without ever having heard this amazing song, songs that pop up out of the ether every once in a while. That's a pretty great description. Uh, he really sells it. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't have any poop jokes in it. That's not that's not like Mark at all. <laughs> uh, or references to Larry Hagman. <laughs> gotta have Larry Hagman. Uh, yeah, but as for primary, I was I was really into The Cure in high school, but in keeping with how my tastes have usually gone, uh, I listened mostly to the more manic depressive, like uh, Friday I'm in Love and Just Like Heaven type Cure that started with the album The Head on the Door. Uh, and I mostly avoided the early ones that are just like 100% depressed from start to finish. Uh, I, I think I listened to them once on Napster or something, and I decided they were too sad for me at the time. But uh, I listened to Faith a couple times for this episode, and it's you're right. It's just terrific. So I'm going to have to go check out the other ones again. Yeah, Faith and, and 17 Seconds were the, the two I got really into in high school. You, know, you, you can <laughs> figure out what that says about me. But I guess disintegration is pretty sad from from beginning to end. Yeah. It's sad in a more you know adult way. But yeah, it's like yeah. a 30, 30 something sad kind of way. Yeah. Um, as to how primary works as a track two, it doesn't. No, it does. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like it because uh, surrounded by the more downbeat music on the rest of the album, it feels like an intimidating fortress that they erected at the castle gates. Uh, and like uh, the holy hour, which opens the album, is kind of like the moat that you have to wade through. Oh, I like that image. Yeah, I have a I have a really like physical sense of how albums progress, uh, which is why I want to which is why I was excited to do this series. I kind of like draw little maps in my head sometimes uh, for albums. Uh, But it's like, yeah, it's like a bass groove shouting none shall pass before you get to hear all the other (laughs) sad music on the album. Yeah, Uh, it's it's very, very stone faced. 
Yeah. Uh, and as a song, it's a uh, yeah, I, I love the two simultaneous bass grooves. And it, it's interesting to me just how aligned with the arc of Joy Division and New Order they were at this point. Like they, they hadn't really like, oh, yeah. broken off from them because, uh, the, the, yeah, the lead line being played entirely on bass is a lot like just, to, you know, the signature thing that Peter Hook would. Uh, well, he right. was already doing that by this point, but that, that became like the dominant uh, feature of New Order sound. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, all I really have to say is great song, and I'm going to have to listen to Faith a lot more. Yeah. Okay, so here's one of my major key songs, or at least I, I, <laughs> I think it's in a major key. It sounds like it. I, the, really, uh, I I don't really know music theory very well, so major key is songs that sound happy, and minor key is songs that sound sad. Uh, anyway, this is track two on Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run. It's 10th Avenue Freeze Out. Oh, yes. of these songs i'm really getting whiplash here (laughs) (laughs) oh this is very major that's good that's good to know uh so i think of 10th avenue freeze out as a model track too which is funny because bruce springsteen has actually frequently used it to open his live shows uh, including his 2009 super bowl halftime show Uh, but one thing that often makes for a good track too is that you can just kind of lop off track one and it would also make a great opener like a you're just coming out with guns blazing. Uh, so as I said before, 10th Avenue Freeze Out is track two on 1975's Born to Run. Uh, and even if you haven't heard that album, you've almost certainly heard track one because it is Thunder Road. <laughs> So I just recently learned to really appreciate Bruce Springsteen's music thanks to Ben's recent episode on Born in the USA. And what I really love about these early Bruce albums is that the sequencing feels like super cinematic to me. Uh, like yeah. Thunder Road is like a great cold open, it, blowing the doors open at a breathless pace, like the beginning of like Goodfellas or Mad Max Fury Road. So 10th Avenue Freeze Out is like getting an opening credits flashback where you meet the players and just learn the story about how they all got together. Uh, And the song is frequently cited as the story of how the E Street Band got together, uh, specifically how Bruce met the big man, saxophonist Clarence Clemens, uh, during a nor'easter in Asbury Park, New Jersey. Um, And just that story and the tone of the song, it gives it gives it the feeling of watching like a bunch of sepia toned photographs fade into each other as the credits roll. And musically, it's it's awesome. It rolls the album right along. It makes me really excited to hear the rest. Yeah, this is what you call a bop. <laughs> uh, oh, that's what a bop is. I'm getting uh, my, my Gen Z slang down. <laughs> this is this is what a bop is. Yes, at least at least I think it is. Uh, yeah, I think this makes a great track, too, because uh, 
If you look at all the other songs on side one of Born to Run, they're all really huge. And this one gives you something just a little bit smaller to, to give you a break from those songs. You know, self-mythologizing in song is always kind of a, a dangerous proposition. Um, it, one one way uh, that it can go horribly wrong is in a song like The Joker by the Steve Miller Band. <laughs> Nobody calls you the space cowboy. Quit making up nicknames for yourself. Or words like the pompatous of love. Bruce Springsteen doesn't yeah. make up any words in this song. <laughs> and, and then use them again in another song. <laughs> The whole first like couple of lines in the Joker is all other Steve Miller songs that nobody has heard of or cares about. But what makes this song work so well is, well, first, first of all, it's just a lot of fun musically. Uh, you can just you, you just want to strut down the street to it feeling all right. Mm -hmm. um, but also, yeah, this maybe this is a, a, a controversial opinion, but uh, Bruce Springsteen is kind of a charismatic performer. What? <laughs> I, I, I don't know if you've picked up on that. Get out of town. <laughs> he can just sell whatever it is he's singing about. By his own admission, he has no idea what a 10th Avenue freeze out even is. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter. It just sounds really good. Hey. It sounds really good. It sounds right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So you, you go along with it. And it's just so much fun. On his third album, he he's already just so confident that this band he's gotten together is like something really important. And it he's he's singing about, you know, not just not just himself in the guise of bad scooter, um, but, you know, making his bandmates into these mythological figures. And it's it just you get a sense of how excited he is to be making music. With these people. God, when did I become a Bruce Springsteen fan? I was not expecting that to happen. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> yeah, what a great song. Yeah. OK, so what is your third and final choice for this episode, Mike? My third and final choice this episode is a song by My Bloody Valentine. It's from their 1988 album, Isn't Anything, and it's called Lose My Breath. heard one my bloody valentine album it's probably the follow-up to isn't anything uh which is 1991's loveless and that has a, a famously very dense sound that almost uh it just sounds like a big ocean coming at you you, you can't really tell the instruments apart you can't make out any of the words or whether there are any but if you go back and you listen to isn't anything Track one of that album, uh, which is Soft as Snow But Warm Inside, uh, that it, it sounds, you know, recognizably like My Bloody Valentine, a little less dense, 
little more space in the mix, but it's it sounds like the same band. to lose my breath and this doesn't sound like anything that was on loveless at all mm -hmm. uh it's big and open the guitars are clean and recognizably guitars you can make out some of the words well you could make you could make out some of the words on the first track too um but it's it's got a completely different vibe and once you've listened to isn't anything if, if you go back and listen to loveless in my experience, it, that album makes a lot more sense. You, you have like more of a, a point of reference for it. But uh, Lose My Breath, I think, makes a great track, too, because it it allows you to get your bearings, I guess, I would say, in a, in a way that Loveless doesn't really. And that has a really good track, too, too but it, it also just kind of bleeds into the rest of the album. Mm -hmm. What really makes this song interesting for me is the way it, it shifts between those really weird dissonant verses that it gives gives it this really spooky almost witchy sort of vibe supernatural i guess i would say mm -hmm. which then transition into these very ethereal you can't talk about my you can't talk about my bloody valentine without using the word ethereal but these very ethereal uh wordless choruses pyramid song has a very good wordless chorus too i forgot to mention that but the the belinda butcher's ooze here just melt me every time Mm -hmm. And uh, I think how they're achieving that, as, as far as I can tell from listening to it, there's there's one guitar in the song that's just droning away on one chord throughout the whole song. And during the verses, the chords that are playing uh, are completely dissonant against that drone. So it creates these really dissonant kind of scary chords. And then when you go into the chorus, suddenly... There's a there's a, a key change, I guess. I don't know if it's a, a key change exactly. I'm, I'm no musicologist, but the chords in the chorus fit with that drone. And when the, the chorus actually resolves, which it doesn't do the first time around, it's it's only on the second chorus where it actually resolves to a to a tonic. That's the drone is that chord. Oh. when you get to that part of the song, then you're finally home. And I, I think that's a really neat trick. Well, I never thought, I never really thought to do like deep musicology on a My Bloody Valentine song. Like I, I just never know where to start with their music. I, what, I remember, I distinctly remember the first time I heard Loveless. Like it was the first, you know, cool indie album I bought in high school. Hmm. And I, I just remember thinking like, what is, what is wrong with this? This music is wrong and bad. <laughs> I think a lot of people this, have that reaction the first time. I I think the typical reaction to uh, hearing Loveless the first time is, oh, my stereo is broken. Yeah. And I'd heard about like how uh, how fussed over it was and how like immaculately produced it, it's, it And I guess it is immaculately produced, but not in like the way you would expect. Uh, anyway, I've really right. grown yeah. to like it. But uh, that, that first listen was rough uh, in high school. 
Yeah, that, yeah. That, it had to grow on me, too. I think My Bloody Valentine is a funny choice because I, I've owned isn't anything for decades, but I've never really thought to focus on the individual tracks. Uh, so listening to it really closely for this episode has been informative about like where one song ends and the other ones begin. Um, but uh, Belinda Butcher's voice is my favorite part of their music uh, when it oh, shows yeah. up. And it, it, it makes Lose My Breath, like you said, it's like a nice, cozy, cool down track in the middle of uh, just two other much more abrasive songs yeah yeah uh, it still feels like you're in danger but not in immediate danger is a good i think is a good way to put it <laughs> yeah it's like it's it's there's like there's there's some danger uh, off in the distance outside your window mm-hmm. yeah I, I was i was listening to it while, while walking my dog a couple of days ago and it's it's starting to heat up a little bit here in connecticut and just uh it was it, it was a good soundtrack for kind of like the the humid haze that i was walking through <laughs> Oh, interesting. Okay, time for the biggest tonal whiplash of the episode. So we're going to move from (laughs) My Bloody Valentine to Weird Al Yankovic. This is the song Hardware Store from his 2003 album Poodle Hat. Bit of an Einstein Neubauten influence there. Yeah. truly astonishing number of songs about handymen and tools, uh, which is to say he has four, whereas most recording artists have zero. So <laughs> uh, so he has the Iggy Azalea parody Handy, the Millie Vanilli double parody Baby Don't Forget My Plumber and Blame It on the Drain, uh, which are collectively called the plumbing song. Uh, and he has I'll Repair For You, a concert only parody of the Friends theme by the Rembrandts. So Hardware Store is his only original song on that subject, and it's also the only funny one. Uh, (laughs) So Weird Al's most reliable comedic device is narrators who are obsessed with one particular niche subject, uh, be it like potatoes or uh, I don't know. It's usually food. Uh, But to this narrator, the Hardware Store is like a Shangri-La of the senses with like joy and endless surprises waiting around every corner. So I picked it for this series because as track two on its original album, 2003's Poodle Hat, uh, it demonstrates that even though Al is known for his parodies, uh, his original songs tend to be where you get the really unhinged, pure Weird Al id. So uh, hmm. track one on the album is uh, is its single, which is a TV themed parody of Eminem's Lose Yourself called uh, called Couch Potato that you can tell he had to record because Eminem was <laughs> like the big pop culture story of the moment. Shows based on reality. Oh, the humanity. Oh, Aussie's family show love profanity. Oh, the insanity. Oh, dogs that crap and be home of depravity. No, they live happily. Yo, plus the Ali G show and celebrity mole. Yeah, trying to be funnier than Eminem is a really thankless task. (laughs) 
as much as I love Weird Al. Uh, so in contrast, Hardware Store is like a miniature symphony, uh, like with elements of Raymond Scott's powerhouse. Uh, I guess Einstürzen to Neubauten, like Mike said. Yeah. Uh, and Gilbert and Sullivan patter songs. And uh, even those influences don't really sum up what a completely bonkers creation this song is um uh, weird al has never played it live because the middle section would be literally impossible to perform because uh, it consists of 16 full bars of non-stop eighth notes uh, played at 126 beats per minute would you look at all that stuff they got elementary turbo feeders toilet seats electric heaters trash compactors uses tractors terrorizing water meters walkie talkies copper wires safety goggles radio tires bb pellets rubber mallets fans and dehumidifiers picture hangers paper cutters waffle irons window shutters paper removers windows I love the heavenly choir. Yeah. I'm not sure if you heard automatic circumcisers in there. That's my favorite yeah. one. <laughs> So I'm sure a lot of listeners uh, will find this song annoying. And yeah, of course, I totally get it. Weird Al has a very specific, very in-your-face shtick that isn't for everyone. Uh, but even though I'm no longer 13 years old, my, my respect for his work ethic has only grown as I've aged. And songs like Hardware Store are why. And it's I think it's a great track, too. Yeah, you know, Weird Al gets a lot of credit, and justifiably so, for being somebody who writes a lot of funny songs. But... uh Something that I I think uh, doesn't get mentioned enough is just the amount of sheer musical talent the guy has. Mm -hmm. I mean, for one thing, I don't think there's a single style of popular music that he hasn't sung. And also, this this is not an easy song to sing. I mean, even without the impossible part, it's it's. uh, it's, yeah, I think it's a I think, challenge. Yeah, I think he's performed it all the way through just once for the studio version. And I'm pretty sure that's that middle section is sped up. Uh, well, it, it, it reminds me of this. You're going to be impressed with my my Weird Al deep cut knowledge here. It <laughs> reminds me a little of his uh, his theme to the 1996 Leslie Nielsen comedy Spy Hard. Oh, yeah, that is a deep cut where uh, the, I had the that song and that as a B-side to the Gump single. Yes. But the the song ends with uh, with Weird Al hitting this uh, comically high note that he holds for this ridiculously long time until his head explodes. And he actually held it for that long in the studio. They thought they were going to have to loop it. And he he just sang it for that long. Yeah. The, the guy's got like serious vocal talent yeah and it's not just weird al he has a phenomenally talented band who like uh, is able to recreate all of the parodies uh, all of the original songs that he parodies and uh, it must be said like uh, his uh, it's been the same band uh, since like 1982 and it's a he he added a keyboard player in the early 90s and uh, but like the the lineup has been stable having uh, like being in weird al's band is just the best gig in in popular (laughs) music i think yeah it that might be Mm-hmm. One of when we did our Beatles covers episode, uh, one song that I I almost picked and didn't because it didn't fit the theme I'd I'd picked out. Uh, but there's there's a there was a George Harrison tribute concert. It wasn't the concert for George. It was a different one where Weird Al came out and did What Is Life completely straight, no jokes. Oh wow! And he he just killed it. Tell me what is life. 
say this song is just six words long. The, no, the, the got he, my mindset on you parody, but that's that's even better. He went and belted out uh, what is life, and it's really good. And it's it's actually this really uh, pretty moving moment to to hear him just like completely put the jokes aside for a moment and just like sing this really heartfelt rendition of a George Harrison song. Yeah, well, as, I, as I've said a few times on the podcast, like I, I learned about a lot of artists by way of Weird Al and he has a, just a really like deep and loving knowledge of music. And that's that's part of why I like him so much. Yeah, that's that's what makes uh, his parodies uh, stand out from from everybody else who does that kind of thing. It's it's you can he really has uh, just a, just a love for music in general and just uh, an appreciation of, you know, whatever zeitgeist he happens to find himself in. I mean, just if you look at his polka medleys alone, he's he is basically condensed the, the history of popular music since what was the earliest song that show, showed up in a polka medley? I'm not even sure. I think but, I think like, his first polka medley begins with Jocko Homo by Devo. Oh, in fact, I know I, that. <laughs> I know it goes. I know it goes earlier than that, though, because he has like a Rolling Stones one. Oh, anyway, it, 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 I mean, his his first polka medley is called Polka's on 45, and it has a bunch of like old older songs on it, like Jumpin' Jack Flash. But it opens with Jocko Homo. There are a few um, okay. contemporary songs thrown in as well. I, I know my Weird Al polkas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do. But uh, but basically he condensed like the second half of the 20th century into like miniature polka form. Yeah, we're we're we're, ta we're talking about like uh, I mean like this series itself, twenty two twos, is like a break from our usual uh, like side episode format. One idea I have had is to take Weird Al's polka medleys and go song by song through them uh, because they are like little <laughs> surveys of popular music at the time, and yeah. uh, you get you get some songs that like are huge hits and some that have just disappeared, and uh, it's really interesting. <laughs> that would be really interesting to do. Uh, I think well, we should do that. Yeah, maybe maybe so at uh, some point. Yeah, yeah, listeners, if you see that series pop up in your feed at uh, we got the idea here <laughs> wow weird al has uh, spawned the most discussion of any song in this episode <laughs> thanks for Nerds. playing along with that mike <laughs> and I, I guess that's it for this set uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks uh, each episode is going to be me and another co-host from discord and rhyme but in the meantime please subscribe to discord and rhyme if you haven't already please share us with your friends and remember to rate and review us on apple Podcasts. it helps spread the word about discord and rhyme Bye, everyone, and keep as cool as you can. There you go, man. Woo!